The three great Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. And if Paul was the apostle of faith, and Peter was the apostle of hope, then John was the apostle of love. John loved Jesus, and John loved people. John was the only one of the 12 apostles who was spared a martyr's death. But it was not because the emperor didn't try. The Roman emperor Domitian ordered John to be turned into a French fry, had him boiled in oil. Miraculously, though, the Lord delivered John. And since Emperor Domitian couldn't kill him, he was banished to Patmos, to a rocky island off the coast of Turkey from where John would receive the revelation. After Domitian's death, John was freed, and he ended his years pastoring the church at Ephesus. As it turned out, God had preserved John for a very important job. A dangerous heresy was spreading, and God knew that a man of John's stature would be needed to squelch it. The evil doctrine of Gnosticism had raised its ugly head, and John writes this letter to stop it in its tracks. Well, chapter 1 here begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John refers to Jesus here as the word or as the logos of life. You see, the Greeks observed the order in symmetry within nature. And they deduced that there had to be a cause behind the cosmos. Greek philosophers, they coined a term for this unknown force. They called it the logos or the word. And here John shocks his readers by reporting that he has seen the Logos. The disciples had handled it and heard it, even hugged it. What the Greeks thought of as an impersonal force, John knew as a personal friend. You know, Farmers Insurance uh, has in recent years had a commercial with the punchline, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. I'm sure you've seen that a time or two. Well, John would have said the same. Hey, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. John had discovered that the reason behind all of reality is not an it, but a he. And his name is Jesus. Well, John writes this letter so that we too can know him. And can experience the joy and love that's found in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 2, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The meaning of life, the purpose of all eternity, is not a secret. No, the Logos has been revealed. The Apostle John had met him and had spent three and a half years by his side. And his intent in writing this letter is so that we too can experience a relationship with Jesus. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, let me ask you a multiple choice question this morning. What is most important in life? What is most important in life? And here are your choices. Number one, to get to heaven. Number two, to serve God. Number three, to know God's will. And number four, to know God more. Think about these four choices for a moment. First, the first choice, it is vital to get to heaven, certainly. But what about until then? And what about once we're there? What will we do? Second, the second choice, we all want to serve God, certainly. But all work and no rest sets a person on a path to burnout. That can't be a good thing. Third choice, certainly life goes better when you get in line with God's will. But once you're in His will, then what? That's why the correct answer to the question, to the meaning of life, is number four, to know God more. See, this is why John writes that we might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm glad I'm going to heaven, and I love serving the Lord, and I desire with all my heart to walk in God's will. But my ultimate purpose in life is to know God. Real fulfillment comes from knowing the God who created us. As John puts it in verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That's why if your life is full of frustration or despair this morning, chances are you have ignored or forgotten or been blind to this truth that you were created to know God. Perhaps you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. You see, God's chief purpose for us isn't a location heaven. It isn't a vocation, a means of service. It isn't a situation or God's will. No, rather Jesus died so that we could have an association with the God who created us, a consistent and loving fellowship with him and its byproduct, fullness of joy. He says in verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. God is a person, but he has characteristics similar to the properties of light. Light invigorates and illuminates. Light warms. Light drives out the darkness. Life produces color and beauty. God is not like the light of the moon, a reflected light. God is like the light of the sun. He is a radiant light. He is the source of all love and purity and truth and beauty. He doesn't just abide by the standard. No, God is the standard. He sets the standard. God is light. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now here's how we grow spiritually as Christians. We walk in His light. See, plants grow by a process called photosynthesis. A plant has cells that absorb the light. And then they transform that light into energy that they need to process food and to grow. 
And as Christians, we grow by a spiritual photosynthesis. Our spirit absorbs God's light. The presence of Jesus in my life causes me to become more godly and good and loving and kind and pure. In short, more Christ-like. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17 explains the process. We're told, but we all, with unveiled face, we have a relationship with him now, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, living in God's presence has a mirror effect. The more I hang out with God, the more He rubs off on me. See, remember, it's not up to a plant to grow. The light causes it to grow. And it's not up to the Christian to grow ourselves. Our job is to stay in the light. And the light of Christ will fuel a steady and perpetual growth. See, Christians need to be sort of like spiritual bugs. Spiritual bugs. Look at the back porch, the back porch light in the summertime. And what do you see around that light? You'll see moths and bugs hovering around that light. We need to be like spiritual bugs and live in the light of God's presence in His Word. And as we do, His characteristics will rub off on us. Growing in Christ is like sporting a nice suntan in the summertime. You know, tanning requires very little effort, does it? Find a nice spot on the beach, stretch out a towel, do the rotisserie turn every few minutes, you know. Before long, you're baked and beautiful. All it took was time and exposure. And this is how we grow in Christ. It's like spiritual tanning. Just spend time daily in the light of God's presence. Be consistent about it. Be faithful to it. And the God beams, His glory rubs off on us. His light is absorbed into our makeup, into our disposition. Live in the presence of Jesus and His blood continually cleanses us, John says. But verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. and The truth is not in us. Now here's what hinders the light of God from having its effect on us. Dishonesty. See, hide your sin. Cover it up. Act self-righteous. Think you've arrived. And such self-deception acts like a 45 sunblock. It shuts out the light. Hey, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. No matter how mature we become in our faith, as long as we inhabit sin-stained bodies, as long as we live in a sinful world, at times we'll sin. A Christian is a person who sins less and less, but none of us become sinless. That's why he says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Once a Catholic priest had heard the confessional of an older lady who was hard of hearing. She actually shouted her sins so loud that everybody in the church could hear them. Well, the priest suggested that the next time... 
she'd make a list and just hand it to him. Well, the next week, the lady entered the confessional booth, and she gave the priest her list. He took one look at it, and he said, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but this is your grocery list. The woman shouted, Oh, dear, I left my sins at Publix. Well, we really can leave our sins with Jesus. We really can if we confess them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's been said, the only sin God won't forgive is an unconfessed sin. Whenever we sin, we need to immediately ask for God to forgive us and to cleanse us, and He will. Which prompts the question, If the moment we're saved, God forgives us of all our sins, past, present, and future, which he does, why then do we still need to confess them? And here's the answer. Our confession helps maintain an attitude of repentance in our hearts. See, as far as God is concerned, our forgiveness is assured by the blood of Jesus, but our repentance is nurtured by an honest and humble attitude. Confession keeps our heart in the right posture. Well, chapter 2 begins, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, don't ever think, oh, since God has promised to forgive me, then I can go out and I can sin. No, John is assuring us of God's forgiveness so that we won't sin. His forgiveness should make us thankful. Always remember, sin is not so much breaking the laws of God as it is breaking the heart of God. If you and I really love God, we'll want to please Him. But if anyone does commit sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, 1 John was written so that we would not sin. But if we do, we have an advocate. The word here means attorney, one who pleads our case. Hey, meet Jesus Christ Esquire. Jesus is our attorney in the courtroom of God. Believe it or not, he has taken your case. On the other side of the court, though, since Satan. Revelation 12 verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. The Greek term devil actually means slanderer. Satan is the prosecutor who's out to condemn you. And understand, Satan has mounds of incriminating evidence. I hate to tell you this, but he does. He's got some videotapes of your private sins. Recordings of some hateful statements you've made. Surveillance of some evil thoughts you've had. Satan's got it all. But just when Satan approaches the bench to present the evidence, our attorney, Jesus Christ, jumps up and objects. He declares the evidence inadmissible. He has already paid its penalty. And because Jesus died on the cross in our place, our sin is forgiven and it's forgotten. Well, verse 2 tells us, And he himself, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. There's only one place where you can go for mercy. 
and that's Jesus Christ. This word translated propitiation means place of mercy. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word kippureth, which in the Old Testament is translated mercy seat. You see, the mercy seat was the gold lid, the solid gold lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was on this lid that the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice and stave off God's judgment on the nation. See, God loves us, yet he can't let our sin slide. So how can he be a loving yet just God? And here's the answer. Over the mercy seat hovered the glory of our loving God. Under the mercy seat set the tablets of God's law, the demands of God's law. But between his love and his law set the blood-stained mercy seat. And it was there at the mercy seat that God's justice and God's kindness were reconciled. It was at the mercy seat that God satisfied the law's demands and yet saved us through his sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the one place on earth you could go and be assured that your sins would be forgiven. But here, John declares a new and radical truth that God's mercy seat is no longer a lid, it's the Lord. That Jesus is now our blood-stained mercy seat. He is our propitiation, our place of mercy. In Christ, the law and the love of God made peace. Jesus is the one place on earth today where all peoples, as John puts it, the whole world can obtain mercy and pardon from a loving God. If you've sinned, come to Jesus and you'll find mercy. And then he says in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin penned the immortal words, Nothing is certain but death and taxes. But you see, John would disagree, for a relationship with Jesus is also a certainty that we can count on. The word know, K-N-O-W, appears 39 times here in 1 John. John writes, so that we'll know that we know God. When the Christian scientist and statesman Michael Faraday was dying, a journalist came to his deathbed and questioned him. Mr. Faraday, would you care to comment on your speculations on the afterlife? Faraday replied, speculations? I know nothing of speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know my Redeemer lives. and Because he lives, I will live also. Well, in the next nine verses, John wants us to know that we know. He wants us to be certain that we know God. And so he provides us a Christian's self-test kit. You know, when a woman wants to know for certain whether she's pregnant, she purchases one of those self-test kits. And likewise, if you're wondering if you're really a Christian, John provides a test that will let you know for certain. 
And the Christian self-test kit is twofold. First, verses 3 through 6, do you keep God's commandments? And second, verses 7 through 11, do you love your brother? Well, John says in verse 4, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now understand, it is impossible to know God and not be profoundly influenced by him. You know, there are some charismatic people in life who have an effect on us. But their effect is nothing like the impact that God has on a life. If you're not enchanted by God's love and intrigued by God's wisdom and desirous of his kindness and longing for God's character, if you don't want to follow God and be more like him and know him more, John says there's only one explanation. You've never really met him. You really haven't. Verse 5 says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. For by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. See, the person who loves God will keep his word and will walk as Jesus walked. He says in verse 7, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard or which you have had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The law of Moses in Leviticus 19 verse 18 taught the Hebrews to love. It declared, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you remember Jesus put a new spin on this verse, this command. For Jesus even loved his enemies, not just his neighbors. Jesus loves unconditionally with no strings attached. Jesus loved lavishly in a way that gripped the sinner's heart and pulled him back to God. Jesus-style love turns love one another into a new command. John writes, for again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. If the God of love lives in you, how can you harbor hatred? You can't. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The light of God will shine rays of love into that man's heart. I am a son of the South. Born and bred in the heart of Dixie. As I was growing up in the 1960s and the early 70s, much of the white community that I was part of justified racial prejudice and white privilege. Even our own church manufactured erroneous theology to justify racial bias. Sadly, I grew up with an ugly hatred in my heart toward folks with different pigment in their skin. But when Jesus became my Lord, he filled my life with his love. He filled it so full that there was no longer any room for that prejudice. The prejudice that I once harbored. Instantly, my attitude changed. I had a love for all people regardless of their race. 
You know, some Christians have dramatic testimonies. They speak of their instant deliverance from alcohol or from drugs or from a vile temper. I was instantly delivered from bigotry. And yet the nation that we live in today still suffers from the plague of prejudice. Though racial equality is now the law of the land, disparities still exist in how we see and how we treat each other. Rather than teach and discipline ourselves to view each person we meet for who they really are, we yield to bias and we fall into the nasty habit of stereotyping and profiling. See, racism is an evil that we've long tried to eradicate from our society, and yet it stubbornly hangs on. See, it seems to me the problem isn't as much a skin problem as it is a sin problem. People don't know the God who created us in His image. Or they say they do, but they really don't. And until they do... And learn to see people as Jesus sees them. Learn to love them with his love. They'll live in darkness rather than light. It's only the power of our Lord Jesus that can change a bigoted heart. And that alone will put an end to racism. So let me challenge you to take John's self-test kit. If you don't keep God's commandments... Or if you don't love your brother, you don't know God, despite what you say. Verse 11 tells us, For he who hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And just knowing that I am a Christian doesn't mean that I'm growing as a Christian. For this is the theme in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Here's a passage that helps us measure our spiritual growth. Three verses depict three stages of spiritual maturity. See, if you go to any family reunion, you will expect to see some older folks, some adolescents, and some children. A healthy family will have representatives at all three stages of growth. And the same is true with the family of God. When we gather as a church for our weekly family reunion, we should be able to expect to find people here at all three levels, some little children spiritually, some young men or women, and some spiritual parents or fathers. And here John identifies these various characteristics of each stage of growth. And as we go through these next few verses, I want you to try to pick out where you're at in your growth and where you need to be headed in your development. John's song here has two stanzas, and he reveals tidbits in each. We want to read them, and then we'll go back and break them down. Verse 12 begins, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. 
Now, first, John mentions little children. Who are they? They're the new believers in the fellowship. And he says two things about them. They relish the thrill of God's forgiveness. And they know God as their father. In other words, they're free from the guilt that used to weigh them down. And they worry less. Why? Because they now can take their needs to their heavenly father. It's beautiful to be a little child in the family of God. Little children, both age-wise and spiritual children, are full of enthusiasm. But they're also vulnerable and naive. They need to grow up and develop a maturity. And so like the young men or the spiritual adolescents, John says two things about the spiritual adolescent. He says they have a hunger for God's Word. In other words, they feed on the Scripture daily. And with it, they do spiritual battle with the devil, and they overcome. The young men are those who've gotten a little knowledge under their belt, and they've begun to use it, and they've become strong and useful in the hands of God. And yet, they're adolescents, aren't they? And adolescents have their problems, if you haven't noticed. The hubris and the naivety of youth can make them divisive. I mean, they assume that they know more than those in authority, that they can do it better. Of course, you know the famous Mark Twain quote, when I was 16, I thought my dad was the biggest fool on earth. When I turned 21, I was amazed at what the old man had learned in five years. (laughs) And this is often the spiritual adolescent. Well, I could do better than that guy. What are these people doing over here? Why aren't they running this thing the right way? There's hope, though, for the adolescent. Given time and patience, they'll grow. They'll learn to appreciate their elders. And that's who John mentions next, the fathers or the spiritual parents. And he writes only one statement about the fathers, but he writes it twice for emphasis. He says, because they have known him who is from the beginning. You see, the spiritual kids are enthralled by God's eminence. They call him father. He's nigh to them. They have a relationship with him now. But the parents are captivated by God's transcendence. He is high over them. And the more they get to know him, the more they realize there is to know. Unlike the kids and the teenagers, the spiritual adults seek God, not just for what he can do, but for who he is. Hey, a father is a man who stops living for himself and begins to live for his family. And likewise, spiritual dads, spiritual parents, they go to church not just to get, but to give. Their priority isn't how they can be blessed as much as it is how they can bless others. Now you see, each of us is at one of these stages of spiritual growth. Are you a little child? Are you a young man or young woman? Are you a spiritual parent? Wherever you're at, the point is, you need to be moving forward. Well, verse 15 tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, sadly, the world system that we live in, the attitudes and values and motives that are promoted around us, are diametrically opposed to God and His priorities. 
And here's what makes the world go round. John sums up the world in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, what is that? That is the desire to feel great. Oh, I want to cater to my flesh. I want to make myself feel good. I want to feel great. And the lust of the eyes, what is that? That's the desire to look great. I want to look good in people's eyes. And the pride of life, what is that? That's the desire to be great. I want to be somebody in this life. The desire to feel great and look great and be great is not of the Father, but is of this world. Here's worldliness in a nutshell. Feeling great, looking great, oh, being great. Here's another way to think of this worldwide web. The lust of the flesh is to live for physical pleasure rather than spiritual fulfillment. The lust of the eyes fixates on external appearances rather than internal character and beauty. And the pride of life seeks to make a mark on the here and now, the temporal, rather than the eternal. The lust of the flesh is a vicious trap. Folks live for the high, the buzz, the escape. But they become its slave. Addiction is a steep price that lust will cost you. The lust of the eyes is just as tragic. Image ain't everything. Celebrities today, they get by on smoke and mirrors rather than grooming their inner character. And the pride of life lives as if the here and now is all there is. It denies that there is another world waiting where we'll be held accountable for how we've lived our lives in this one. One day the real living will begin. The biggest need for some people is to see an eternity in their future. See, John is wanting Christians to come out of this world. Real satisfaction doesn't come by gratifying physical desires, but it comes through a spiritual relationship with God. Real beauty isn't what's attractive to others or attractive exteriors, but it's about reflecting God's glory. And real meaning isn't found in temporal pursuits, but in a life that counts for eternity. And then John writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. After a time in prison, Charles Dutton became a successful Broadway actor, later went on to star in television and in movies. But when asked how he transitioned from prison to plays, he explained it like this, unlike the other inmates, I never decorated my cell. I never decorated my cell. Dutton believed his prison cell was a temporary situation. He refused to let himself get too comfortable there. And you see, this needs to be our attitude in this world. This world is passing away. I'm just passing through rather than get caught up in worldliness. Let's seek godliness. Verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. 
The Antichrist is the ominous future rebel leader that John warns us about in the book of Revelation. He pairs his claws after the church has been raptured and he leads a global revolt against God. But he has many predecessors, John warns us. In Matthew 24, remember, Jesus predicted one of the signs of the last days would be a proliferation of teachers who are anti-God and anti-Christ. John saw a rise of this deception in his day, and it has only escalated since. John speaks of these false teachers. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Some false teachers start out on sound, biblical ground, yet they want to be novel. They want to be different, and so they kind of wander from the truth to entertain folks or to inflate their own ego. You know, teaching the Bible is like shooting a bow and arrow. Say your target is 100 yards away. If your aim is off a fraction of an inch, you can miss that target by 10 yards. And the same is true spiritually. Just a little error in a foundational doctrine can produce enormous deviation later down the line. It says in verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. And here is the believer's safeguard against spiritual deception, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, the anointing of olive oil was a symbol of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And to each of us, God's Spirit has been given to teach us and to instruct us. Jesus promised in John 16... When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is like our watchdog. He sniffs out deceptions and lies, like GPS. We get off our course a little bit, and the Holy Spirit will recalibrate you. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. What is, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now, earlier I mentioned that God preserved John to combat a dangerous heresy known as Gnosticism. And its central feature was its denial of Jesus as Savior. We'll learn more about the Gnostics later. But now, just understand, they concocted these fanciful tales and theories to support their ideas. They were wrong, but they sounded good. And here John tells his readers not to get suckered. You need to know the truth. You need to know God's Word, and you need to know God's Spirit and His voice. For God's Word and God's Spirit agree that Jesus is God. So don't you cave in to the lies. If a man denies that the Son of God and God the Father are one and the same, then you know he's a liar. Verse 23, For whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. For he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, don't be swayed by these new avant-garde religions. Don't look for new truth. Hold on to the truths that you've learned 
and been taught in Jesus. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. For the words of Jesus alone are eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not just longevity of life. It also speaks of a quality of life. Jesus puts his spirit in you. He lives out his love and his joy and his power in you. Jesus' smile shows up in your face. His laugh is heard in your voice. His compassion flows through your hands. Eternal life doesn't just begin when you die. It begins the moment you give your whole heart to Jesus. And then he says in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now, John had confidence in the ability of the Holy Spirit to help us discern truth from error, to help us grow in the knowledge of God's word. See, God could have set up one church or one headquarters on earth to be the official arbitrator of divine truth. But that's not what God did. Rather than entrust the interpretation of his word to an institution or to a priest or to a pope or to a pastor, God gave each of us his spirit. God's truth is conveyed through a personal anointing available to all believers. Look at the church down through the centuries. It's been saved from heresy time and time again. And the truth has been safeguarded, not by the faithfulness of one sect or a single religious order or denomination. Whenever orthodoxy is threatened, the Holy Spirit stirs up a revival that corrects the problem and that brings truth back into focus. When the message gets distorted, the author himself restores the true interpretation. If you've ever heard someone say, you can't understand the Bible without reading their literature, beware. He or she is a cultist, I guarantee you. John says that all a Christian needs to grasp God's word is the Spirit of God. Good Bible teachers can be helpful, but they can also be wrong. God doesn't want Christians to put their trust in any human teacher, but in the Holy Spirit. And this is why the Father puts his anointing in our hearts. Pick up your Bible. Allow God's Spirit to speak to you personally. Don't just read through the grid of what you've been taught by someone else. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart afresh, for he is our teacher. And then he says in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Jesus is coming back soon. We need to be ready to meet him. For if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, sons look like dads. Dads look like granddads. And those born of God 
practice his righteous ways. So how do you know that you know God? Do you keep his commandments? And do you love one another? Jesus is coming, and he'll test us then. I suggest we self-test now. 